to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon in this week for Jerome McDonald. According to estimates, the world is now in the worst refugee crisis since World War II. One refugee hotspot is Bosnia. More migrants are using a new route to reach the European Union. They end up in Bosnia by way of Albania and Montenegro, then they try to cross over into Croatia. But border police in Bosnia have been pushing them back. Thousands are now stuck there. The Bosnian government provides very little help, so people are left to fend for themselves. The BBC's Balkans correspondent, Guy Delano, went to Bihać, Bosnia, to follow file this report. This is apparently the best that Bihać can offer to hundreds of recent arrivals. An old student dormitory left in a shattered state after Bosnia's conflict more than 20 years ago. The windows have all gone, rain comes through the roof, and there are holes in the floor marking the places where shells exploded. There's graffiti on all the walls, and the whole place stinks of urine. But hundreds of people from places like Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan are sleeping on the bare concrete here, Every night. I'm Said Husagic. I'm the protection officer here in Bihaj, UNHCR. It's a rapid increase in numbers here. The capacities are overwhelmed. Conditions are appalling. I mean, as you see, it's, it's very difficult. Everybody involved in helping these people here on the ground is doing their best. The government's Support so far has been missing. Why didn't do your work? Your duty. Khaled says he was a teacher in Syria. He's expressing his frustration to the UNHCR officials. Here, the situation very, very bad, especially. It is. Especially. Don't talk to me. This country, very poor. This country, very, very rich. Very rich, but the government's very, very bad. Young children play with plastic guns in the gloomy, filthy corridors of the building. Some may have seen armed conflict in real life. They don't want to stay in Bosnia. This Afghan family are clear about their desired destinations. Because we want to go in Germany and Switzerland. You don't want to stay in Bosnia? Because Bosnia uh, don't give us money and home like that. In the meantime, this dilapidated relic of Bosnia's conflict of the 1990s is their temporary home. The desperation to reach the European Union means the people are prepared to put up with the stink danger and discomfort. This 32-year-old man says he left Iran because of its repressive government. This uh, situation is so, so terrible. And you can see here is like a toilet. Have you already been to the border? Yeah, yeah. I uh, tried uh, past the border of Croatia about three times. Our problem is our Croatian police. They stop people and uh, come back to Bosnia. It's lunchtime and hundreds of people are queuing up for their one hot meal of the day as provided by the Red Cross of the city of Bihać. It's a serving of stew and bread, simple stuff, but it's as good as it gets for the moment. I would define this uh, number of migrants in Bihać as crisis. Amira Hadjimedmedovic is working with the International Organisation for Migration, the IOM. 
politically it is difficult. We had a war. Uh, we we haven't recovered completely, if I may say, in political terms to to be stable country to to respond to to any problem we eventually have. Bosnia saw barely any refugees when the Balkan route was in full flow three years ago, and the numbers now aren't big by those standards. But this poor, ethnically divided country can barely look after its own people, let alone thousands of arrivals from refugee-producing countries. Theoretically, the central government should be taking charge, but the president of Bihać Council, Davol Zupa, says the city has been left to cope on its own. We're asking the government to help with at least the basics. At a minimum, we have to provide the migrants with food and sanitation. Most of them, they're not bad people, but their circumstances force them to break the law. It's up to us to provide adequate help to keep all of us safe whilst they're here. Bihać will need help, because if previous summers are anything to go by, arrivals are likely to increase. And if Bosnia can't cope with the numbers now, the situation could quickly go from unpleasant to unsustainable. And that report was from the BBC's Guy Delauni in Bosnia. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon. The number of migrants arriving in Europe has actually dropped dramatically. Yet a recent public opinion poll found that a majority of people in the EU believe immigration is the most pressing issue. Unemployment and climate change rank much lower. And leaders in countries like Italy talk about stopping the invasion and the mass cleansing of neighborhoods. We're going to talk about the politics and the recent policy changes around EU migration now with Dimitri Papadimitriou. He's a senior fellow and president emeritus of the Migration Policy Institute, a Washington-based think tank dedicated to the study of international migration. Uh, welcome back to Worldview. My pleasure to be with you, Alexandra. Um, you know, so I mentioned that we've seen a kind of decrease in the numbers of migrants coming to Europe with respect to when the crisis was kind of at its peak back in 2015. They're a lot lower, and yet we've seen a real ratcheting up of rhetoric uh, in recent weeks and months and this opinion poll, which finds that people really do feel like uh, immigration is the thing to be most concerned about. So if the numbers are dropping, what is is behind this sort of increased fear of immigration? Well, primarily, it is concerns about... um, what in Europe they call integration policy. In other words, will these people be able to adapt the social cultural ethos of the countries in which they have entered? Will they learn the language? Will they be able to accommodate, in a sense, the priorities of the host community? And of course, economic concerns. Mm-hmm. And economic concerns is a funny thing. These are very rich countries. Um, Germany is running fantastic surpluses, but it is also spending over 25 billion euro per year on integration. And this is just one department, their interior department, let's call it their DHS, the Department of Homeland Security. 
other departments, labor, et cetera, et cetera, are also putting on the table an awful lot of money. Mm-hmm. And all that disquiets people. In addition to that, you have a reaction to immigration that's there all the time. We call them populist movements. Yeah. And these, these, these movements have moved from movements, in a sense, into political parties that are now very substantial. And in many instances, like Italy and like Austria, they have actually their governing parties in coalition, but governing parties. And politicians focus on one thing first and foremost, politicians everywhere, Mm -hmm. which is to keep their job. Sure. They're focusing on the next election. Sure. So it is, in a sense, a bit opportunistic, but in reality... A lot of these numbers that, as you said so correctly, are infinitesimally smaller than 2015. During August, September, October, November of 2015, uh, Germany, Europe, saw 200,000 people almost every month walking all the way to Germany and Sweden and to the left and the right, etc., etc. This year, we are already in the middle of July we have about 47,000 who have come in. In other words, this year we're going to have less than 100,000 people making it into Europe, which is less than the total of one month compared to 2015. But it is not, it is not always the numbers. I think focusing on the numbers mm-hmm. is, in a sense, the wrong metric. It is focusing on the way that people are coming, yeah. They're coming unannounced. They all remember, all these citizens remember what happened two or three years ago. And you have politicians who exploit the issue. What about, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is uh, there's quite a lot of coverage of crime. Uh, what When there is a crime, there was a teenage girl in Germany who was killed um, by a refugee. Um, it got a lot, a lot of coverage. Um, and a kind of hist- a, a, there was a similar case um, in, in Italy, if I recall. And so there's these um, stories that the, the fear that sort of these people are criminals um, is a line that really, I think, um, that, that gets played up quite a lot in the media and that the politicians are are playing on. And I, I'm curious how that, you know, you mentioned that that the integration, that there's been a lot of money spent in Germany on integration programs. So is it the sense that none of those programs are working and here we've tried to help these people um, assimilate, but all that happens is they is that they carry out crimes and, and they're here to destroy our societies? Is, is that how it plays out? Uh, Alexandra, that's a smart and difficult question to answer. All the evidence that we have is that when you count all of the statistics that involve crimes made by newcomers, let's call them newcomers, people who came the last few years, okay, Mm -hmm. you will find that they are less criminal, they commit fewer crimes than the population in general. So you have that evidence, which is very strong, which obtains in practically every country, including our own. And on the other hand, you have this high profile incidents, okay, Mm -hmm. the little girl that you mentioned, you know, there's always an example like that, that gets played completely you know, sort of like as big as you can make it, because we somehow expect, and I'm not going to make any judgment on this, 
uh, we somehow ex- ex- uh, expect that these people will absolutely be saints, okay? So this, in any population involving, they're almost, what, 400,000 in Italy, they're, you know, about a million and a half plus recent newcomers in Germany, you cannot expect that there will not be an incident or two. Now, something else also weighs down the issue of crime in Europe, that if we were having this conversation in 2015, 2016, early 2017, security, public security, would have been in the top of my list. You notice I put integration on top of my list. And the sense that all of these crazy things that happened, you know, in Paris and and in Brussels and elsewhere, all of these have finally gotten the European governments to pay extreme attention to domestic security, homeland security. So you put that very difficult issue on top of these high-profile crimes, Mm -hmm. in top of people thinking that, my God, haven't we taken enough? And you know that this becomes an explosive issue that can easily be taken advantage by populist parties, not just of the right, but also of the left. Although in the last three or four years, populism of the of the type that has a focus on immigration is more a phenomenon of the right, the extreme right, the radical right, rather than the radical extreme left. I'm talking with Dimitri Papadimitriou. He's a senior fellow and president emeritus of the Migration Policy Institute. And we're talking about migration policy in the EU. Coming up next, we'll hear about a ship that delivers health care in West Africa. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the uh, policy shifts that have been on the table. Um, And one of them has to do with uh, these ships. Um, You mentioned earlier, we're not seeing the same number of um, kind of boatloads of people coming across the Mediterranean, but ships um, have actually been at the heart of kind of the debate in recent weeks. We saw Italy refuse to have a ship dock. It, It stayed in international waters for several weeks. Finally, Spain let them in. Um, There was another ship, I think, just these last 48 hours that um, it was unclear whether they were going to have it dock or not. They moved the people off of the private ship onto an Italian Coast Guard ship. And the Italian interior minister said he wants to close all the ports. Um, What is the, the legal framework here for these ships in international waters? And how is it that one country can deny or accept a ship versus another? What, what's going on here with, with the boats? Well, we have international law, something that is called the law of the sea. So regardless of which, you know, boat it is, you know, and where the boat is going and what it is carrying, it has an obligation uh, to actually save people who are drowning. Okay? So... This requires these particular ships, suppose that it is an American ship, okay, in the Mediterranean, to, since the United States is not at play here, nobody's going to bring, you know, all these people to the United States, it requires them to take them to the nearest port. Mm-hmm. If the ship is Italian, they have to go to Italy. If it is Maltan, to Malta. If it is French, to France. But... This is one set of laws. And then, again, politics and common sense enter the picture. Uh, Italy had an election a few months ago, and it has now 
a complex government. Uh, part of it is, let's call it, you know, sort of left or uh, Italians first kind of a party, but from the left side, you know, trying to create opportunities for the vast number of young unemployed Italians. And the other part of the coalition is a very hard anti-immigration group. The heads of these two uh, political parties are vice uh, uh, prime ministers, deputy prime ministers. The prime minister himself was selected by those two parties by right. agreement right. and in one sense reports to those. The hard right party, Mr. Salvini, who is the head of the league in the north, has made it very clear from day one that once he takes over, in whatever capacity, he's going to deny the right of these boats to come into Italy. And he has once more different kinds of politics. Europe is very good at pointing the finger at the countries that receive essentially all of the immigrants. And by that, I call migrants, I should say. Some of them are what we would call illegal immigrants here. Some of them are regular convention refugees. They meet the definition of the, sure. of the United Nations Refugee Agency. And some others are in between. And there is some wiggle room in part of the, uh, you know, of the government as to what to do with them. He basically says, for three or four years now, let alone 15 years, which is more accurate, Everybody's happy for Italy to be stuck with all of those immigrants. The same way that Greece was stuck with about 850,000 mm -hmm. people in 2015 and early 16. At least most of those people walked their way up to the north. Mm -hmm. So they say, why should we be the taxes on this? So what has happened in the last three or four weeks? The European Council, that's not the European Union which is what we're thinking of the European Parliament and the European Commission, which is more like an administrative executive agency. The European Council, which is the heads of government of all of the 28 member states, got together a couple of times in the past two weeks and basically agreed that they were going to try to prevent as many immigrants as possible from making it onto Europe. And for those that do, they made bilateral agreements that a place like Germany would help Italy, a place, and they also cut a deal with Greece. It's a very messy thing. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly, the European institutions, the Commission and the Parliament cannot handle complex social crises. This is a responsibility of individual member states because it is the government that has to, in a sense, respond to what people expect the government to do. Right. And you have a, a dramatic division between people who say we're rich countries. We should take as many as we need, as, as many as come, and we should treat them properly. And that's a minority, but it is also very vocal, very strong. Yeah. And on the... I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, 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 that's true. I mean, I there was uh, two very famous um, Italian writers I saw who people might be familiar with. Um, uh, for example, the the man who wrote the book Camorra, um, Roberto Saviano. They've called for sort of people to come out on the boats and experience uh, what it's what it's like on those boats and who these people are. So I've seen there's been some pushback uh, from the public. Certainly, there is there is pushback, and governments say, you know what. We are not 
going to take people the way that they're coming. We don't want them. And we're going to try to find a way to examine their claims over there, whether it is Libya, whether it's Tunisia, whether it's 10 other places in North Africa. The problem with that approach and the reason that it's difficult to trust European governments on this issue is that in order for that to work and for all these governments to meet their legal obligations about refugees, they have to find a way to relocate, to resettle those people who are found to be proper refugees. But there are certain countries, six or seven or eight, Mm -hmm. in the European Union that they don't want any of these refugees. So we are moving from impasse to impasse, from seeming progress to sort of then going back on all of this. And you have Austria that is now in charge of the European Union, the president of the European Union for the six months from the beginning of July to the end of December, that basically says, well, now I'm going to close the borders. And we also don't want people to come in under false pretenses in Spain and then eventually find their way into the places that they really want. In your, in your set piece, you heard this fellow, this young man, saying we want to go to Switzerland and Germany because Switzerland and Germany will give us more money. Right. Okay? Right. So, and people are trying to move to those places. Well, now there's an agreement between Austria and Hungary and Germany that will try to dramatically I'm not going to say stop, but dramatically reduce the incidence of people having this kind of what they call secondary migration. You move to one place and then you move to the place that you really want to go. So that complicates the whole issue, both legally and philosophically or emotionally or ideologically or whatever you want to say. Well, it sounds like we're going to have a lot more of the same of what we've seen over the last uh, several months and years, really. Uh, Dimitri Papadimitriou is a senior fellow and president emeritus of the Migration Policy Institute, a Washington-based think tank dedicated to the study of international migration. Thanks so much for joining us today. A pleasure as always, Alexander. Uh, Just a quick reminder, President Trump's nomination of Brett Kavanaugh is being called the biggest decision of his presidency. It's also the beginning of a long process. Be sure to listen to WBEZ 91.5 and NPR every day for analysis, context and details on what comes next. to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon. For the nurses and doctors who volunteer their time aboard the floating hospitals of Mercy Ships, things are a little different than back at home. It's, yeah, it takes a moment to kind of settle it in your spirit or my spirit because the patients, every single patient that you see has a really dramatic story like yeah it's full-on surgery for each and a full-on story for each child and it takes a bit of time to recalibrate and adjust from Sydney hospitals. 
That's a clip from the documentary, The Surgery Ship. It chronicles the work that's done aboard Africa Mercy, a fully equipped modern hospital on the water. Nate Klaus is a registered nurse and hospital director for Africa Mercy. He's featured in the film and will be taking part in a Q&A tonight at a free screening of the film at the AMC River East 21 in Chicago. Welcome to Worldview, Nate. Thanks for having me. It's so cool to be here. Okay, so, so Nate, you uh, had a real job, is that what they say? <laughs> um, and decided to go on board um, a ship uh, and be gone months and months of the year. What made you want to do it? That's right. I um, Well, actually, I first volunteered with Mercy Ships way back in 2003, just out of high school. So kind of trying to find direction in my life. And I had a friend that had been on the ship before. So I've, I volunteered then. And that's definitely one of the things that planted a seed in my mind that healthcare was a very practical way of caring for people. So what's it like kind of day to day? Because this this is a fully equipped hospital. Um, you don't come off the ship, right? You're there kind of day and night. Yes, it's, it's right. It's a state-of-the-art hospital ship. We have five operating rooms, room for 78 patients on board, a CT scanner, a laboratory, basically a pretty full-functioning hospital. And we dock in a country for 10 months at a time. So we're a lot of people think we're anchored, but we're actually docked and we get to go on and off all the time. Um, and that's how we find our patients usually in the field um, in the country that we're in. Um, so the film has uh, a really interesting kind of – crazy scene, which is the the screening process, because when you dock, um, you get thousands and thousands of people uh, lining up, basically, to um, get treated. And uh, according to film, in a, in a day, you might screen all the, the patients for a year. Is that... Yeah, it, it kind of depends on the country that we're in um, and the, the strategy that we are using for that country. But um, we, we often host these big screening events when we arrive in a country and um, thousands and thousands of patients come, usually between five and 7,000. And we do about 2,500 surgeries in a 10-month period. So um, we're obviously having to do a lot of triage and a lot of um, sorting through uh, and prioritizing. Um, I want to play a clip from the film about this screening process. Anybody can operate. It's, uh, the wisdom is in uh, knowing when not to operate. And I think that uh, this is a, a real case in point here. Is... So I have to help the father to understand the reason why the boy cannot have surgery. You know, sometimes I do go and ask myself, how do I do this? <laughs> because to tell someone... The news like that is very difficult. So uh, part of what you do is um, turning people away mm-hmm. um, and telling them uh, that there is no treatment. Um, kind of what's involved in that decision-making process and then, I mean, what is that, what's that like? Yeah, to say the very least, it's it's extremely difficult. Um, so before I was appointed hospital director, I worked on our screening team for four years and saw, saw kind of day in and day out this scenario that we just heard from the clip. Um, we do the best we can. We have a lot of resources. Um, the person speaking was one of our patient life counselors, so we just help them understand um, why we can't do surgery. It's not because of anything that they've done or any kind of curse or anything like that, but it's just that we're not equipped with the personnel or the equipment to do their t- specific type of surgery. So it's, it's obviously heartbreaking, but... Um, and can be overwhelming. I think we have a lot of our staff that, that kind of get weighed down by this heavy heaviness. 
Um, but we try to focus on the ones that we can help. I think, I think that's the only way that a lot of us can keep moving forward. And um, often in Mercy Ships, we talk about um, helping the individual. I, I mean, we, we're working on a big syst- systemic problem, um, but if you get bogged down by the huge statistics and the overwhelming need, um, you can kind of have two reactions. You can, you can get dejected and, and depressed, or you can be called to action and, and step up. And so we try to focus on that individual patient because all those statistics represent individual people. I'm talking with Nate Klaus. He's a registered nurse and hospital director for Africa Mercy. It's a hospital on on a ship, and he's featured in a film that will be uh, screening tonight for free at the AMC River East 21 in Chicago. It's called The Surgery Ship. Um, I'm curious, you know... this is a you you do a lot of surgery really surgery is a big focus of the kind of treatments you offer um and it is orthopedics it's tumors um what are the kinds of things you're treating here yeah you hit a couple of the big ones that we do so we we do a lot of uh, removal of benign facial head and neck tumors as well as rec- repair of cleft lip and cleft pellets um lower leg deformities that's the orthopedic cases that we often do and um, we do a lot of plastic reconstructive surgery, mostly for burn contracture, scar releases. And um, then we treat a condition called obstetric fistula, which is um, a condition when a woman is um, obstructed in labor, a prolonged labor that's obstructed and the baby gets stuck in the birth canal. And ultimately, the result is almost all the time that the, the child dies and the woman's left with this debilitating condition where she constantly is leaking either urine or feces. And so you're sort of filling in um, really a particular gap in the countries that you're going to, and you 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 dock and you're there 10 months, but then um, you leave after 10 months, um, and you treat thousands of patients, but you're turning away thousands of patients. Um, you know, how sustainable do you th- see this as a model for sort of addressing some of the mm-hmm. wider healthcare mm-hmm. issues in the countries where you're working? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because um, <clears throat> so we have – our kind of our direct services component of what we do, um, but we also have a very large medical capacity building um, program that we do. So we work very closely with the Ministry of Health of each country. We're actually only going to a country if we're invited by the host nation, usually the head of state or the Minister of Health. So we have a very collaborative relationship with them, and we are doing a lot of mentoring, training, and running of courses for the local surgical workforce, and that is specifically designed to leave a lasting impact after we've sailed away. And you do follow up with some of the patients that you treat as well. The boy, There's a boy in the film mm-hmm. who um, the, they talk about getting schooling for him and kind of making sure that he's taken care of once he does leave the ship. Absolutely. Yeah, we do our very best. Most of our surgical procedures are designed to be curative and be taken care of in the time that we're in a country, so it doesn't require a lot of follow-up care. Um, but often, if, if there is follow-up care needed, we set something up, and we, we often return to countries that we've been to before. Um, the, the film shows us in Guinea, Conakry in 2012 and 2013, and that's where we're headed here in August. So I'm sure we'll see a lot of our old patients again. Well, good luck on your next voyage. Uh, Nate Klaus is a registered nurse and hospital director for the Africa Mercy Ship. He'll be at a Q&A tonight for the screening. It's free of the documentary, The Surgery Ship. Uh, that screens at 7 p.m. at the AMC River East 21 Movie Theater. That's at 322 East Illinois Street. Thanks again for joining us, Nate, and talking about the work you do with Mercy Ships. Thank you so much.
President Trump's nomination of Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court is being called the biggest decision of his presidency. It's also the very beginning of a long process. Be sure to listen to WBEZ 91.5 and NPR every day for analysis, context, and details on all that comes next. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon. And we hear a lot of refugee stories these days, but we don't normally hear one like the one we're about to tell you. It begins in 2009. That's when actress Kim Schultz was invited to join a group of American artists and travel to Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon to meet with Iraqi refugees. The artists would collect the refugee stories and turn them into some kind of art form. But Kim found herself in the middle of her own refugee story. She fell in love with one of them an artist named Omar, and she's written about the experience in her memoir, Three Days in Damascus, and Kim Schultz is joining me now. Welcome to Worldview, Kim. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. So, Kim, the book is really this lovely combination of um, your own story, unexpected, I assume, for yourself. Yes, very unexpected. (laughs) And uh, the stories that you heard from the Iraqis that you met as part of this project that you went to do. Um, But not everybody wants to put their story out there for the world to see. What made you want to kind of put your own story in with those of all these other refugees? Yeah. So when I had met with the refugees, I was actually telling them that I would tell their story to the world. And so I knew I had an obligation. Several of the refugees spoke to me privately and said, please share the story with the world. So I knew that I would be doing that. Uh, The question was how. And so when the love story was happening, I realized that that was my access point in to it. And so although it's a scary thing to share your private, ultimately tumultuous and (laughs) not all that great love story with the world, I knew that that was my doorway in because Uh, We rarely give much attention to the refugee issue. It's been a completely non-issue for many years until just recently with, of course, the Syrian um, refugee issue, which has been the largest unprecedented humanitarian crisis. And so uh, I knew that the way in was through the love story. And as scary as that was for me, I decided that that's what I was going to tell. So, of course, now, after people are reading the book and coming back to me, I go, oh, this was really private. I didn't realize quite how private it was as I was sharing it. (laughs) This was 2009. So before war had hit Syria, really, one of the things you write about in the book is how little you actually knew about Iraq or the Iraq war refugees. Actually, I'm wondering if you could just read us that passage. Sure. I still can't believe I'm here. This is crazy. I'm not a journalist or a social worker or anybody else who knows about these things. I'm an artist. I was invited along on this trip as part of an artist delegation with a New York-based nonprofit organization. Eight of us are here to interview Iraqi refugees in the three countries, Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria. We're supposed to hear their stories and bring them back to America audiences with our respective art forms. I'm the writer. I'm supposed to write a play about this issue, and I will write a play. About what? I don't know. Refugees, I guess. But I know nothing about Iraqis and basically nothing about the Iraq war. I mean, I had to Google Iraqi refugees before I came. That's how little I knew. Okay, so you're this actress, (laughs) playwright, 
Googling Iraqi refugees. Yeah. And I started uh, to cry immediately. And I went, oh, I'm in big trouble now because, <laughs> of course, horrific. Um, so what made you decide you were going to take this leap and go do this? Uh, so the organization Intersections International commissioned me to write the play. And honestly, it was it's funny as I look back because I thought, oh, amazing, a trip to the Middle East. I get to write this play. I'm commissioned. Like, cool, cool, cool. And and so I said yes in a heartbeat. And, and I was working on several projects, writing a TV show. I had um, a couple other projects I was working on. I go, great. I'll just go to the Middle East. I'll do this cool project. I'll come back, write the play, boom, 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 be done and move on with my life. And um, I have yet to do that. Uh, (laughs) This changed my life in a way that I never could have imagined. Uh, I came back and wrote the play, um, you know, had fallen in love with Omar, uh, was in that relationship, became an advocate for refugees, began working with several refugee organizations in New York where I was living at the time, and then continued writing articles and op-eds and now the book. So uh, I laugh because I've never gotten back to that TV show or any of the other projects um, as my life took a completely different turn. Okay, so there was this really big turn that was really personal that involved this guy Omar that yeah. we're hearing about. You know, you go over to to do this project to kind of collect people's stories to sort of share them with the world. That's the intention. Tell us a little bit about that moment when you met him, which sounds like um, love at first sight? Was it love yeah. at first sight? Yeah, I would say it was. Uh, as cliche as that is, it was. And, uh, you know, still to this day when Omar and I talk, it's how did we, how are we, who are you? I'm so grateful for you. How did this? Remember that moment? And and he always says, this was meant to be, Kim. And, and you know, in my worst days, I'm like, but why? But he... Yeah, I would say it was love at first sight. We saw each other literally across the room. Um, we had emailed briefly before. He was an, and still is an Iraqi artist, but he was living in Damascus and we were visiting with Iraqi refugee artists, the American artists and the Iraqi artists coming together as a kind of a meet and greet, share experiences as artists together. So I had emailed him briefly because I wanted to meet him. I'd been in touch via another person. And we saw each other that night, and it was all downhill from there. (laughs) (laughs) Or uphill. And so I went to um, his studio, saw his work, and we ended up spending the next days together uh, in Damascus and the next three years trying to sort through a relationship. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon, and I'm talking with Kim Schultz. She's the author of the memoir, Three Days in Damascus, and we're talking about uh, her story. You're in these countries, and you've experienced your own kind of personal refugee story with this artist that you fall in love with, Omar. And at the same time, you are kind of you're going around and you're hearing um, how war impacts families. And um, one of the things you write about quite often, and and you write about this in terms of Omar and and many of the Iraqis that you meet, is how generous they were to you, even though you were American and America had invaded their country. What did that feel like to have people being so generous when so much of the destruction that these people had escaped had in part been caused by the country that you're from? It was very interesting and and often challenging. Um, The Iraqi people, I say in the book, and I would say to any person that are the most generous people I've ever met, um, generous of heart, generous of spirit, generous of everything. We went into homes that I write in the book, there's a cinder block family, I call them. Um, They live in a cinder block square home. And it was one of the worst housing um, situations that we saw. 
And they literally had nothing but a half a bag of rice in the corner. And there was six or seven of them living in this cinder block house. And they had a half a bag of rice. And they, we walked in and they said, what can we get you? And we said, no, 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 we're full. We're fine. We don't, you know, we have gallons of water in the van. And they send their children to borrow money from a neighbor to go buy a bottle of water. And they, the children come back and we all stand in a circle and drink the water together out of the water bottle because it's all they can offer. And, and it kills them not to offer tea or a proper meal. So the generosity was across the board. And so to experience that and the love they gave us uh, was challenging for me to try to balance it with the Iraqi refugee crisis was in no small part due to the U.S.'s uh, influence and invasion of that country and the, the power vacuum that happened after that. And so for them not to blame me and not to blame us, whereas I think had the situation been reversed, I'm not sure that we would have been as generous. Uh, and I did speak to a few Iraqis about this and certainly to Omar about it, but there's a real separation that they have between the government and its people. And people actually said that, oh, American people, we love American people. Oh, your government, oh, Bush, oh, you know, is different. And that was never an issue for Omar, that you were American? Uh Never. I mean, you have a lot of instances in the book kind of where you talk about him not having money because one of the things that happens to refugees is they don't necessarily have a steady income because they can't work. It's illegal in many of the countries where they're placed. And you have this story where he runs in to borrow money from a friend to pay for your shawarma. Tell us that story. Yeah, it was um, actually on our first night together. And we were hungry and racing through the streets of Damascus in search of shawarma, um, a private joke between us because I loved it and he loved it. And it was uh, our favorite sandwich. So we were in hopes of finding it on the street. And I was intending on buying it just because I am coming in in a certain situation that I know he's in a refugee situation. Anyway, he said, let's stop here at the store. He walked into the store. I saw something happen with his friend behind a counter and I saw an exchange of money. And it dawned on me that he had gone in to ask his friend to borrow money to pay for the shawarma sandwich for me. And I I stood there and I thought, should I say something? Do I want to? I mean, I have money. I can buy the shawarma sandwich. And, and am I going to insult his pride? Is it better to just let him do this? And in the end, I decided it was better to let him buy it. Um, but that generosity, again, is everywhere. So that instance there, it speaks, I think, not only to generosity, but I mean, many of us have been on a first date and, you know, I think it happens all the time, even in America still, sure. women and men, who's going to pay? Or right. Should I pay? And so, you know, on the one hand, you can understand that. And then I don't know, is there a moment there where you're also, you're from two different cultures, you don't know the rules? Yeah, we. I mean, there was lots of situations like that as we were trying to find the rules or find the way between us. Um, I felt like several times I was trying to be more Iraqi and he was trying to be more American. (laughs) You know, he'd be super Western and then I'd be, I don't know, and we were trying to find the middle of that and we would laugh about it. So family is very important in Iraqi culture. You talk about this and when you come back here to the U.S. and you're continuing your relationship with Omar, you decided to try to make this complicated international intercontinental um, relationship work with a refugee who doesn't always have access to Internet and all those things that you described. Family comes up 
also in your relationship. Yeah. Omar is kind of under some pressure from his own family. He's not married. Yeah, he is, you know, in his late 30s and single. And this is culturally questionable. His family want him certainly to be married. His mother and his father knew about me and loved me. And we had spoken on Skype, on Yahoo, on video chat. And I thought really were big fans of mine. (laughs) And it was interesting because as Omar was discovering that we were getting him resettled in Canada on a refugee visa, we had tried to get a fiancé visa and had agreed to a fiancé visa and were going to have him bring him over and then ideally be married. And he canceled that rather suddenly on me. And I was left for a few days wondering what in the world had happened. And when he finally came clean, he admitted to me that his family had really wanted him to marry an Iraqi girl and marry a Muslim woman. And they really felt strongly that he was leaving the area, leaving the region, leaving the country, leaving their culture. And they wanted him to have a piece of that to take with him. And he said to me, how do I say no to that, Kim? And as much as my heart was broken and I was shocked and angry and all those feelings, of course, On some level, I understood that. How can he say no to that? His family's wish was for him to take his culture with him. And so that's what he did for a while. So, Kim, you know, your relationship with Omar, this great love affair goes on for three years and uh, over Skype and... And attempting to get there in the midst of a civil war. We had, you know, I'd gotten several visas and was going. And every time I attempted to get into Syria, you know, it was he had to leave because it was too dangerous for an Iraqi refugee or I couldn't come because it was too dangerous for an American. So with, of course, the civil war and the revolution brewing, it was an impossibility to get there. So, yes, we were. So all of these external yes. barriers. But all through the book, you're reading and everybody loves a good love story <laughs> because we all want to think love conquers all. But actually, in your case, it, it doesn't. You don't end up marrying Omar. What happened? Uh, on the cover of the book, or one of the bylines of the book is, uh, this isn't supposed to be a love story. And um that has always been my truth because I don't think it was supposed to be a love story. I had hoped it would be a love story. We, I think, at some point had hoped it would be a love story, uh, and it wasn't. Um, I write in the book, and of course I've processed a lot through this, but that it is there was too much to overcome, that sometimes love isn't enough. Um, I believe we did love each other, and we still do love each other, but it wasn't enough at that moment. There was too much to overcome with his transition, with the cultural, with his family, with everything, and we made the choices. And and still, um, to this day, Omar and I talk, and I think there's always this glimmer of something, and we wonder, should we? Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure that the story is complete, but I'm I'm also comfortable with where it is right now. I can't tell you exactly. I don't think we can ever write, tell exactly why something falls apart. Um, but it did fall apart and uh, and broke my heart. But I'm not sure I can pinpoint why exactly, except that it was larger than it was larger than love. I mean, one of the things you write towards the end of the book is that maybe your connection to Omar, you need to keep that connection because um, you had promised all these other uh, refugees and Omar 
was also a refugee that you would tell their stories and that somehow by holding on to him, it would mean you wouldn't lose all those stories. You wouldn't forget about all those people you had met. Yeah, I think that sometimes I look back at that relationship and I say, I fought so long and so hard for Omar. And was I fighting for Omar or was I fighting for all the the Iraqis that I met? And if I let go of Omar, I was afraid I would let go of them all. And they had touched my heart and changed me so much with their stories that I couldn't let that go. And I was afraid of letting that go. I, I was afraid that that would disappear from my focus. Um, and I believe that I was given a gift of hearing these stories, and it was my job to tell them that it's my job to help humanize this inhumane refugee crisis that we have going on, that these are individual people with individual stories who individually need help, and that cannot be massed together. We look at a number like 65 million, and we say, well, I can't do anything about that. That's crazy. But there's one. There's Omar. Hmm. And I helped him. And then I helped his friends. And if we can see it on an individual human basis, I think then we can be activated to do something. And that's what the goal of the book is, the play in all of my activism around the issue of refugees. Kim Schultz is the author of Three Days in Damascus. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida with production assistance from Viviana Garcia Blanco and Shazmin Hussein. Kyle White Sullivan engineered today's show. I'm Alexandra Solomon, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.